Thank You, Now What? is a podcast about life after service, where we discuss firsthand experiences and issues among veterans who've separated from the military. I'm your host, Matt DeVivo, along with our producer, Ben Murray. This episode, we'll talk to Tara Hyger. Tara grew up on a farm in Wisconsin and joined the Army after 9-11 with a strong, curious desire to discover more of the world while making a difference. After serving overseas as an intelligence analyst in Iraq and Germany and training as a psychological operations specialist, Tara left the military after nine years to further her education, forge new career paths, and grow her family. Do your non-military friends call you DeVivo too? Uh, it's a business school thing. Oh, you, everybody calls each other by the last name? Uh, no, I don't think so. Oh, you just tell people that's what to call you? I've never told anyone that. Oh. <laughs> okay, so we're, we're, uh, we're finally getting into it. What's up, Tara? Minute zero. We have Tara Hyger. Minute She's zero of podcast zero. Sorry, I interrupted you. <laughs> She's our first guest on the Thank You Now What podcast. How does it feel to be first? Uh, a little intimidating. I didn't get to hear what this sounds like to anybody else or what kind of questions will be had. So, uh, but no, it'll be good. It's exciting. I hope that this takes off and that there's a lot of people out there who can benefit from the conversations that are going to be had. So yeah, our success is like, uh, you know, really hinging on you. Someday when I run for office, they'll pull this up and they'll be like, oh no, totally unfit for office. We could destroy all of it for a fee unless someone downloads <laughs> and duplicates it and we can't help that. Okay. All fair. Uh, you joined the army in 2004 and you were going to college at university of Wisconsin. You were like, a, you had a farm, your sixth generation growing up on your farm. And this was after September 11th. So like how, how much did September 11th influence your decision to join? Did you, did you have any ideas of being a soldier before then? And how do they change after it? Um, so I was in high school, I was in freshman or sophomore, sophomore year of high school when 9-11 happened. And I remember sitting in the band room because I was a band geek and um, the band director ran in and he yelled, somebody just flew a plane into the World Trade Center. And I was like, what's the World Trade Center? <laughs> like, I had no idea. I was on a farm in Wisconsin my whole life. Like, what business do I have understanding anything about what the World Trade Center was in New York City or any of that? And in my mind, I remember very vividly picturing like a uh, crop duster airplane, you know, because we grew up on a farm. So there's crop duster airplanes all over. And I was like, I'm sure it was just a mistake. And then obviously as the day progressed, we realized it wasn't just a small airplane. And then obviously it became a really big catastrophe that impacted all of us the rest of our lives. But I remember being really curious. That was the first time I really became interested in international affairs. Because I was like, how can this happen? And I have never even heard of the Taliban or Al-Qaeda, like all of these things have, have completely slipped past anything that I've, I've ever read or known about it. And I started to wonder why I wasn't, I didn't know anything about this. So fast forward to 2003, I was a junior or a senior, I guess I was at the end of my junior year and the invasion into Iraq happened. And that's when I got like a big, like feeling of FOMO. Like I was really missing out. I'm like, whoa, there's this massive like, international televised invasion. I remember sitting in science class and watching it and just thinking, that's badass. Like, holy, you know, you see like the bombs and the cars and the, or the Humvees and you see, you know, everything that's unfolding on TV. And I was like, 
That is so cool. And what am I doing in this small town? My parents made me agree that I would go to college for a year. And I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, so I went to college for a year. I went to the University of Wisconsin in Eau Claire. And um, while I was there, it was the election in 2004, and I started paying attention to like political affairs. I took a Middle Eastern politics class, and it was taught by an Iranian. And I, I remember just being like, there is so much I don't know. So I did my required one year by my parents, and then I dropped out. And I remember in January, I came home for, or December, I came home for Christmas, and I said, Dad, I think I'm joining the military. And he obviously was pissed. And it was right after Bush got elected, the second term, and my parents are very liberal. And they were like, you're gonna go to war, you're gonna fight this, what the? You know, they're like, there is no way in hell. I joined for a multitude of reasons. I, I want to contribute. I don't want to miss this important part of history, and I don't understand it. Like, I want to go and see it. I want to be there. And that's kind of been, like, what's driven me ever since is, like, I just want to see these things happen that have, like, long implications and, and, you know, international consequences and are exciting and dangerous and you learn so much and you're part of the action. I think that's kind of was my driver more than anything. Okay, so what job did the recruiter sell you on? Or like, what did you, because I know you did a couple different things in the military. So when you first, when you came in, like, did you, were you getting what you wanted out of it? I got to MEPS in Milwaukee and the guy looked at me and he goes, you can be a truck driver, a cook, or an intel analyst. I know what a cook is and I know what a truck driver is. And I was like, does he not know I just dropped out of a pretty good college to come here? And this guy was so rude. It's like, fine, three grand, Intel analyst, you ship out June 14th. And I was like, holy shit, like my life just, okay, we're, <laughs> we're there, this happened. And then I signed the paperwork and I raised my right hand, I did the whole thing, and then I finished the second semester of college. And people were just like, what are you doing? You're joining the army? Like, what? You know, and like, I mean, I was prom queen in high school. So when I go back and t told my high school friends, they were like, that is weird. And then it was a whirlwind after that. I mean, when I went to basic training, I got assigned right away to my unit in Kansas and deployed right after that. So it was kind of a quick, a quick, fast moving decision. Yeah. So how, how old were you when you did your first deployment and how long was it? So I was part of the surge into Baghdad. So we got orders in January and shipped out in February and it was an entire brigade. So I was 22. No, I turned 22 when I was there. So I went right into, we were right in Baghdad. I was part of a light infantry unit. So we supported the, it was in the 1st Infantry Division. So we were all over Southern Baghdad. And we were there for the first three months. And at the end of the three months, they said, start the clock over, you're doing another 12. Uh, so that was interesting. So we ended up being there for 15 months. And uh, something I always think about with that deployment is how I wished I would have kept a journal how many things that I remember that are interesting and, you know, I, I think back on a lot and how many things I can't remember and I wished I could. So I, I think that was a real, it was a really, really good deployment. And, I, and I, I keep thinking about how I need to go back and write down the memories I do have while I still have them because it was such a, you know, like a deployment for most people, I think, in the military is such a, a time of like growth and like really learning about who you are and you know what you're capable of and how you operate in like these weird places and you learn so much. So yeah, it was a really it was a really good deployment. 
Yeah, because I know that in your, uh, so you have a video uh, speaking in front of the Tillman Foundation, and uh, you talk about things that you saw in Iraq as like a lower enlisted person forming kind of what you wanted to do professionally later on. So you, so you specialize in comparative politics and resettlement. Uh, and you told a story about like busing civilians across war-torn areas in Iraq at a pretty young age, early in your career. Um, what, I, what, what are the biggest things you remember about that? Yeah, I remember watching the news when I was in the talk the Tactical Operations Center, watching the TV that we had up, and it was, you know, people fleeing Baghdad. Like, we had essentially just arrived with 30,000 troops, you know, in a matter of 45 or 60 days, and they knew it was about to be really bad, so people were leaving, and I remember just watching the news, just showing it, and, and people were fleeing for Syria. People were going to Jordan. People were going to Kuwait. Like, people were fleeing, like, to Iran and even Turkey, and I was like, wow, you know, like these people's lives have completely been altered. And it's so easy to look at everything in a war zone as us versus them. And it wasn't easy for me. It wasn't easy for me to look at that as it was happening and think, you know, whatever else other people were thinking. It was more of a, we're, we're in their country and these people are being forced out of their home. Like, I hope we don't mess this up for them. I don't know, maybe that's just like my big bleeding heart liberal side of me, but like, it was just one of those things. And I think it was, and I was seeing it, you know, and you could see the traffic and you could see the people leaving. And it was, it was just sad for me. It wasn't exciting. So you're already, so at this point you're already thinking about like, how do we return these people to a normal life? Yeah, I was wondering, what does it look like when they come back? And then I had never lived in- I don't think that's a common thought among young soldiers. No, I agree. I agree. Uh, and I knew that. And I and I'd never really fit in with normal young soldiers, I don't think. You know, I was always kind of more curious about bigger picture consequences. I think um, I've always been interested in, in inter like and other countries and cultures and people and places and and for me, it was like I was in another country. I wasn't in a war zone. So I think that's why. I think I've always made that comparison. It, it wasn't going to war. It was going to Iraq. You know, I was going to a place. I wasn't going to an event. So maybe that is what kind of drove how I took it all in. Okay. And so at some point, you finally got into PSYOP. Uh, so you're a psychological operator. Yeah. Uh, do you just want to talk to... Uh, like Ben and other people who don't know what that means about yeah. uh, what they do? So, well, I'll just back up really quick. When I was in Iraq, I re-enlisted for two years, and I only re-enlisted if I could go to a strategic command because I wanted to understand the big picture. So I went as an intel analyst, but I got to UCOM, so European Command in Stuttgart, and I met my husband, who I graded his PT test, and I was really like, I want to jump out of airplanes, I want to learn a language, I want to do something more. And at the time... Women weren't allowed in any combat roles. Women weren't really allowed to do much outside of support roles. But the one opportunity there was, this was 2010, was to go PSYOP. And that's the only place, PSYOP and civil affairs are the only places where you can go, at, where you could go as a woman and still be in the SOF community. SOF, so Special Operations Forces, represents the community of selection-based jobs in the military. So PSYOP is kind of like information operations. Like you're giving information to people around the world. You're like an advertiser, communicator, trying to, you know, project the United States as a partner. 
Um, so you're influencing the narrative. Yeah. Through different channels. Right. Okay. Yep. So I got to Fort Bragg. I went to airborne school and they told us when we got there, like, oh, you have to go through selection. And I was like, selection? Like, I thought we just show up and go to PSYOP school. And they're like, you leave on Friday. <laughs> I was like, what? So we showed up and I did the 10 day selection. Uh, we had to do the um, downed airman carry and we had to go through, you know, run for an unknown distance, run on unknown, unknown time, unknown distance. Mm-hmm. Um, we had to do the rock. We had to do, you know, everything. That was the first time I was integrated with the men. It was like, oh, I'm finally part of the team and not like separate. And yeah, I think it was really awesome. I think it was a really good experience. And they woke us up at midnight, you know, when we got to sleep and to do long division, you know, and then we had fire guard all night. And then we <laughs> woke us up at 3 a.m. to like go run for six miles. And then at 6 a.m. it was time to start our day. And it was like, we haven't even slept. And then at the end of that, I made it through. And then it was language school. I learned Pashtu. So that was really fun. I spent six months doing Pashtu training. And then I went through the PSYOP course at, the, at SWIC, the John F. Kennedy Special Warfare Center. And from there, it was kind of a big flop. The army was like, oh, you learned Pashtu and you're one of the few women in SOF who speaks Pashtu at a tutu. Let's send you to Egypt. And I was like, great, great use of talent. Thank you. At this point, I had already finished a master's degree and I was like, because I had just been doing it online the whole time. And I was like, I don't think they're actually giving me what I need. So I spent three years in PSYOP never deployed because of the Arab Spring. Uh, so I kept needing to go to Egypt and they kept telling me, wait a couple weeks, wait a couple weeks, wait a couple weeks. The embassy doesn't want any soldiers there during the Arab Spring. And then they're like, okay, you're going to go to Afghanistan. And then it was like, okay, well, now you're going to go here. And it, it just never panned out. So I actually spent like two years training for deployments and never actually went on one. I just kept getting recycled into different detachments as deployments came and went and fell through and all the politics of being a PSYOP or PSYOPers go to embassies. So you have to have the State Department in on it. And there is always so much politics trying to decide between the DOD and the State Department who can get in and who can't and how it works. So yeah, that was kind of the end of my active duty career. Okay, but you got a master's, which means you completed your undergrad. So how did you like? How did you find time, balance it with work? I know that there are tons of enlisted people who should be leaving with at least an undergrad and don't. Uh, how important is that? I mean, how important was it for you, and how important do you think it is for people uh, as you know as a step before they leave? Yeah, I required all of my soldiers at all times to be in undergrad classes because. I just think it makes a more well-rounded individual. And especially when you're talking about soldiers who are dealing with international affairs all the time, like you need to have some, uh, some sense of outside of your everyday. So it was really hard. I was in Iraq and I, I finished my, ma- my undergrad right as I was leaving Iraq. So it was like 13 hour days. And then what else do you do? Most people go back and watch movies and I would go back and do homework. I remember we paid $70 a month for really shit internet in uh, our like tent. Uh, yeah. it, was, we were, it was called the T-building. It was like a, an aluminum structure that we lived in. And there were wires throughout the whole thing. Like it was just, it was so hodgepodge. But I got, we got the internet in the room. And um, yeah, I was able to finish that mostly while I was there. And then I finished the last couple classes when I got to Germany. And then right away in Germany, I started my master's degree and finished that, uh, I think, three years later. And that, that was like, our, you know, American Military University. 
but I got it in uh, international relations at that point. So yeah, it okay. was really important. Um, and I have actually a lot of people who've reached out to me in the last couple of years and they said, Tara, back in 2012, when we worked together at wherever, in Fort Bragg or wherever, you really pushed me to finish my degree and I'm just, you, I finished my undergrad and I just finished my master's. Like, and, it, and it's like, cool, because I'm like, that's so impactful. I think it's so important. And to think you can just fall back on your military service and your experiences and that people understand that is is short-sighted and you need something that they understand and a bachelor's degree is the most basic currency of employment i think that you can get for free in the army that yeah. that translates to anything yeah I, I remember being deployed with the slow internet and someone come in and yell at you like hey are you downloading something because you know i need to submit an assignment right now and you're choking out this bandwidth mm-hmm. um, and that was before yeah. streaming so you so you and Chris combined have like 10 college degrees or something like some crazy, right? Um, seven master's degrees. <laughs> Between the two of you. <laughs> it's, it's a problem at this point. I've not, not been enrolled in school my entire life. Actually, this is the first month, May 2020. This is the first time I've ever not been enrolled in a program. Uh, is it a yeah. competition? No, it's a series of missteps and questionable <laughs> decisions and fate. So you guys are married and in the army. So is it a joint decision to separate? And are you like synchronizing your efforts when you make that decision? What goes into that? Yeah, so we got married in 2012. We actually had a baby right before we left active duty, which was kind of the deciding factor. My husband had also hit 10 years. I was at nine years active duty. And we were going, God, he also had a master's degree. He had just finished a, like a strategic communications master's at George Washington online. And we were both in Bragg and we were, our deployments were not happening. Like we were like, we just want to deploy, but we also want to be used. Like we're not, we're not just average Joes. We're not going to go like fix the Humvees in the motor pool. You know, like we, we can contribute in very intelligent ways. And we were just not getting that, you know, in the military, your rank determines your capability and your intelligence. Uh, and that's really frustrating. And we were really, we felt really stymied by that. So we're like, okay, we're at that point where we have to make the decision. We had a baby and we were very confident that our education and our experience could get us a job. And it was hard. Luckily in August, we found a job up in Cleveland. It was like a tech startup. And we always joke, everybody has their leaving the army job. And when you leave the army, you get a job and it's your year to like realize how to act in an office, what you like and what you don't like. This was a really bad decision, usually comes into it at some point. What the, what the fuck did we do? You know, like, oh my God, we didn't know how good we had it. Like, and it's that yeah. year of just like realizations that your life is never going to be like it was and there's no going back and that this isn't as easy as you thought it was going to be. So how do you deal with the loss of like the support structure? Uh, like either the resources or the community? Cause we talked about this before and before I got out, I never even had to look for a doctor or a dentist. You know, right. where do you find one in the phone book? <laughs> and then everyone I knew was my friend already for some reason. Like if I was moving, you know, on a Saturday, I could get 20 people to show up. Yeah, well, we got to Cleveland and we looked at this big truck that we needed to unload and we're like, we don't know anybody to call. We're like, 
oh my God, we have a four month old and we have to unload this whole house, you know, into another house by ourselves. You think that moving, paying movers is like the most exorbitant cost in the world, but really you like learn later, it's not that expensive and we should have just done that. You lose um, a built-in community. Like we, didn't, we weren't from Ohio. My husband's from Missouri and I was from Wisconsin. We're like in Cleveland and we don't know anybody, you know? And it's like, we, we know the guy we interviewed with. I'm glad we had each other, obviously. Like I wouldn't, wouldn't want to do that alone, but it was hard in the sense like, I was a new mom trying to make civilian friends who were moms as well. And they were looking at me like, who are you? Like, you just came from the military? like we don't really know what to say to you. We don't have anything in common. You know, like it was really hard to, to get into. It took a good year before I had some solid friendships. And I think that was hard. But then the other part that was hard was like, I, I, don't, I don't know how to handle normal office politics. And when there's an absence of a rank structure, like it was a tech startup company, right? So like there's no rules. Everybody reports to everybody. We show up to work on skateboards and we leave whenever we want. And there's no, not a, like there's no sick days. You just come when you want, you go when you want. And it was like, yeah. we were like floating in space. And like, how do I talk to the boss? Does he have an open door policy? I remember I asked that. I was like, does the boss have an open door policy? And they're like, you can just <laughs> talk to him whenever you want. <laughs> I was like, I don't get it. Like. So yeah, that was weird. And then like finding a nanny, you know, and like finding somebody to, you know, fix our house. Like, and those are normal things that you have to do in the military, but generally in the military, like you're either in the barracks or you're on on-base housing or- Or you have 10 friends in the same neighborhood. Right, yes, exactly. You never really you have to- come mow your out. lawn while you're deployed and you do the yep. opposite. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so it was yep. really weird. It's really, and then I remember like, we wanted to drive home to Wisconsin one weekend. It was like Memorial Day weekend or something. And I was like, do we need to tell somebody where we're going? <laughs> this episode of the podcast is brought to you by the Coast to Coast Foundation. Founded and operated by members of the U.S. Special Operations Community, the Coast to Coast Foundation works to bridge the financial gap between veterans' medical needs and what's traditionally covered. Their annual cross-country motorcycle ride, the Ride for the Fallen, stops in more than a dozen cities across the country to strengthen communities and raise funds. All proceeds from the Coast to Coast Foundation go to assisting veterans in their recovery from combat and service-related issues like traumatic brain injury, post-traumatic stress, substance abuse, and other physical injuries. By veterans for veterans. Visit coastxcoast.org to find out more, and more importantly, to donate. That's coastxcoast.org. You can also follow them on Instagram at CXC Foundation. Thank you. So what, like, when you think about the plan that you had, obviously it sounds like a lot of things didn't go to, according to plan. Uh, is there anything that did? Or were you just like, all right, new plan? Uh, well, we, we did that job for a year. And at that time, Chris, my husband, decided he wanted to get an MBA. And about halfway through his MBA, he's like, you know, I really like finance. And I was like, you know, I really hate this job he got a job in banking in downtown Cleveland at like this boutique investment bank. He was just starting his new job and I quit my job without telling him. And just because I was, I was done. And I remember I walked into the, he was in the shower and I just said, hey, uh, and I hadn't seen him in like three days because investment bankers work 20 hour days. Yeah. I was like, yeah. I quit my job, I quit, or quit my job on Monday. And he was like, 
what? You know, flung the, the shower curtain door open. I was like, yeah, I can't do that anymore. And then I enrolled at Cleveland State University. I was like, I need to do something else. I am not cut out for this type of work. I was like, I really want to get into the nonprofit world. I really want to get into some other type of endeavor. I don't know what it is, but I know that I can find it if I go to school. So how do you do, how do you like balance ambitions and support between the two of you, right? Like you're, you, so you have a family, you have a partnership, you try to make it happen. Each one of you wants to be, you know, mutually supportive, but have different kind of goals. How do you balance all that? Yeah. Um, I hate to say this as I sit here drinking out of my cup that says tears of the patriarchy, but, <laughs> okay. um, but I think we did fall into, Chris was working so many long hours, I ended up being the main caretaker and going to school. And it's kind of stayed like that. So since then we've had, we have three kids now total, but I've, he's always been the person who can work a 20 hour day and not be concerned about where the kids are at school, who's getting the groceries, if the house is clean, if the nanny's paid. And I have always been the, I need to have a flexible schedule so I can manage all the other aspects of our life. And so we've balanced this, like, we were both going to school for a while. He finished his MBA, then he got a job in banking. And then I was finishing my graduate degree at Cleveland State University. And we were balancing in the sense that I took the load at home and at school with a, a meager income. He took the load at, of only working with a, with a better income. And then those kind of married up. So fast forward, he got a job in banking in New York City. Yeah, so you guys both moved to New York. Did this coincide with your graduation or was there a little overlap? No, he came in, He came to New York in February and I graduated in May. So we, there was a little overlap. I just stayed in Cleveland and took care of selling the house and kind of finishing up there. It was okay. hard to leave. I loved Cleveland. I think that was a really cool city. I think there's a lot happening. Okay. So I got, I got, my ma I got a, ba a master's there in um, urban studies with an emphasis in like urban planning, uh, community development stuff. Because I really thought like, okay, like cities are cool. I still kept going back to this idea of Baghdad, right? Like what happens to cities after a war? What happens to cities after we leave? How do those people come back and recreate their cities? Like what happens to neighborhoods? What happens to, like how do all these things work? I finally joined him and we got a, an apartment on the Upper West Side. I was apprehensive about what life would be like without a car. You know, with, we, we had a three-year-old yeah. at the point at that point. You know, you're looking at an apartment, you're like, oh, look, that two-bedroom apartment is $5,000 a month, you know? And it's like, oh, that's a lot of money. And so that was a little intimidating, but we got to the city and I started realizing, like, I could, you could put me in any job, anywhere, and I'm confident that I could figure it out. But nobody could, no, like, you can't get hired on that, <laughs> you know what I mean? So I was so like- So you want to talk about the one person who did talk about uh, yes. good E7 yeah. jobs? So they have job fairs all over New York City, like every couple months. And I went to a job fair down in Midtown and <laughs> this guy who works for a big bank in the city, uh, older guy, you know, wearing a really nice suit. He's like, oh, hi, yeah, we're looking for, we hire vets, we have this veteran hiring program. I see you have a master's degree, that's, that's great. I assume you're an officer. And I was like, no, actually I was an E7. He goes, hmm. Okay, well, we have some E7 jobs for you. And I was like, what does that mean? You know, and I kind of got really like defensive. I'm like, what does 
what do you mean E7 jobs? He's like, well, you could start out as an analyst. I was like, but you saw I have a master's degree. And he's like, I said, I have two master's degrees. And he's like, he's like, yeah, but we're a veteran hiring program, so we really rely on your military time. And then he kept emailing me after that, like, hey, Tara, really curious if, you, if you're interested in this job. And he would send me like the most mundane jobs. This happened to us so many times. And I think it's important if you're talking to people who are leaving the military, who are enlisted specifically, like we wanted to apply for a job at a big company in Seattle who have distribution centers all over the country and they have a veteran hiring program. So we contacted their veteran recruiter, Chris and I both, and this was back when we were looking for houses when we left active duty or looking for places to work. And we contacted the recruiter and we're like, hi, this is our qualifications. We've been in the military for you know eight or 10 years. We have master's degrees. And they would say, oh, what's your rank? And we'd be like, E7. And they're like, cool, you can be a forklift driver. You can be a assembly line, you know, packer or whatever. And I was like, did you not hear what I said? And like, well, the veteran yeah. hiring program is based on your rank. Right. And I was like, so you're telling me an O2, a lieutenant in the, in an officer could leave active duty with three years of experience and a bachelor's degree and be my boss. Like I left the military for this exact reason. And they're like, yep, that's right. how so the, it works. The, the, the relationship, you think, is pretty antiquated. Yeah. like in Intellectually. It, of officers and enlisted? Yeah. Yeah. And then I compare Big Army to SOF, and it's much better. Like in the Big Army, I mean, you would never call somebody by their first name anywhere. You know? And in SOF, there's that level of, like, respect and, like, equality that happens that I found much more like bearable. But yeah, I think right. it's antiquated. And I think that the that veteran hiring programs carry that over into their hiring practices is really messed up. Right. So like who's who's telling them to do that? Right. right. Why did they think that was a good idea? It's almost like they consider it white collar, blue collar. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Like you're a blue collar person up in the executive's office. Like, what are you doing here? And, like, you could have done that. You just picked to do the other thing, and being enlisted is just way more fun. Heck, you yeah. Get to do, you get to do the stuff. Yeah. You don't get to, you don't brief the stuff. You don't ask for permission to do the stuff. You don't make PowerPoints about the stuff. You do the stuff. <laughs> That's so true. And people always say to me, why don't you become an officer? And I'm like, why would I ever want to do that? Like, when is, when did that be a good idea? Like, No. Yeah, like, I mean, people like you who joined after 9-11 and because 9-11, you gave up some other opportunities to do something that was here and now, right? It's not like you're not the, the person who is sitting in front of the judge, go to war, go to jail. Right. You're, you know, you're like an intellectually capable person who, who chose to do this and then moved on to do something else and people are still seeing you as you know, they're like picking things off your uniform to judge you by. Right. Things that really don't mean anything. You know, it's frustrating. It's so frustrating, and especially because you're put into a box so early. And I think when people join the military early in their lives, that box is comfortable, right? Because you're leaving, usually generally just leaving home. And yeah. it's comfortable because you understand what your left and right limits are and you understand everything. But as you progress, like it, it becomes really constricting. There's no ability to like leave that box. 
you can leave the military, but for some reason that box follows you. And even today it follows me. And, and I think about how some soldiers wouldn't be able to navigate it as well, you know? And then they're stuck in these jobs or with these opportunities that are much lower than what they're capable of because they've never been told they're more capable than their rank. Yeah. It's, it's hard to see that. I, I've been incredibly impressed by, you know, people who did whatever they did in the military, officer enlisted, whatever job functions they did, and now being out five years, the people that I know and interact with, it really kind of like all washed away. Like I, there's no one in my life I think about as officer enlisted or whatever. They're just, they're just like smart, capable people right. that I know or that I work with. And it just seems silly to think about anything in that context uh, anymore. And coming from, you know, uh, special forces background, like we were on a first name basis, non-commissioned officers had a lot more responsibility and more authority. And we just, we got along uh, more closely. And, you know, that's what I enjoy about like having transitioned to uh, back to civilian life and that we can kind of resume that level of professionalism. Right. Yeah. Yep, I agree. So, all right, so back to school. So now we're in New York and back yeah. to Columbia. Yeah. To, to knock out two degrees at once because one just wasn't enough. Well, it was June and I was real, it was July and I was like, Chris, I don't know what to do here. I don't know anybody. The city is so intimidating. Everybody's got incredible networks and incredible schools. I'm just a nobody with no experience because I've still never really done a job outside of the military. And so I found that Columbia University had a dual urban planning, but it was international urban planning and SIPA, which is the School of International Public Affairs. And I called SIPA and I was like, is there any chance that I could apply for September? And they're like, no, it doesn't work like that. And I was like, okay. Uh, can I? And then I called the urban planning school and I was like, Hi, I'm a newly transitioned veteran, just moved to New York City, and I kind of played the vet card, which you have to do sometimes, I think, to like get people to listen to you the first time. Yeah. And I was like, I don't, I just want to apply, and like my life just kind of moved here quickly, and I don't, I just want to apply. And they said, can you have your application in by Friday? And I did, and then on Monday, I got my acceptance, and I started school like three weeks later. So yeah, I, I got into Columbia, and I, you know, and it's one of those things too, like, I didn't think I was gonna get into Columbia. And I remember walking on campus with Chris and I, you still don't understand what you're capable of at this point, right? When you leave the military, everything is new and big and, and scary. And you also don't exactly know where you can fit. Like I theoretically could do this job, but will they take me seriously? And a lot of times I think people self-select themselves out of opportunities because they think that they can't get them. And a lot of that I think comes from people being enlisted. An enlisted person generally doesn't leave the military and apply to an Ivy League school. My husband made this argument, Tara, don't self-select yourself out of the school, apply. And I got in and I could not believe it. So I started school at Columbia. So the, G so the GI Bill gives you like a housing stipend. Yeah. And, but still, I mean, Columbia is pretty expensive. Yeah. Um, so you're, you're kind of piecing together GI Bill, mm -hmm. uh, scholarships, mm -hmm. uh, working on the side, and mm -hmm. then coming out of pocket or out of savings. And, yeah. you know, some people think that just getting out, you're going to sign up for the GI Bill, everything's going to be taken care of. No. And, you know, it, it, the math just like doesn't work out 
like that unless you go take the minimum course load at a state school for four years exactly and have no living expenses. And work. and Yeah, and work. But, okay, so, you know, talking about moving through school and sort of moving through the job market, uh, you also do time in the Guard, National Guard. No, reserves. Right? Reserve, yeah. reserve, sorry. Yeah. So uh, you carried that over and uh, you're a subject matter expert on geopolitics in Africa? Uh, yeah, I would say subject matter expert is a very strong word. Um, okay. <laughs> but, but yeah, so I stayed in the reserves and that was a decision we made in 2013 actually when we both have active duty. We had the baby and we weren't sure that we would have a job. And I was like, I can't not have health insurance. So I said, I'll stay in the reserves. I really like the army, actually. So it was for me, it was easy to say, I still want to be part of this every once in a while. And I did one weekend at a TPU, which is like the one weekend a month drill thing. And I was like, okay, I lied. I can't do this. This is just absolutely not for me. I found out quickly there was an opportunity at uh, a unit in Stuttgart, Germany, uh, focused on Africa. And... So now I'm there. So what I do is every summer I go spend a month um, in Germany and I work in the intelligence section of that unit and it's really, really awesome. Like I really enjoy that. So it's just like get to be in uniform one month every year. Yeah. So, and so it sounds like it sounds helpful that that can relate to the other things that you're doing yeah, academically and professionally. For sure. Yeah, because then I went to school and I started studying East Africa. Um, I started studying like Rwanda, what happens to the cities and the, and the countryside and the people after genocide. And I tried to compare that a little bit, like what happened in Iraq after the surge? Like how do people come back home? How do these cities rebuild? How do these countries and states rebuild? And so yeah, I started studying that a lot. And that's kind and of- And the Tillman Foundation funded a trip to Rwanda during grad school, right? Yeah, so my first year of grad school, I didn't have any scholarships, and I realized that was just ridiculous. So I applied for the Pat Tillman Scholarship in 2017, and I put everything into those essays. It was kind of a shot in the dark. I knew a couple of people who had made it and you kind of look online at all the applicants of other, or all the people who had received the scholarship before and you're like, oh man, like, and then I just told myself, don't select yourself out, self-select out of this. So I applied, I got an interview and I got the scholarship. It was phenomenal. So that helped me a lot my last two years. Yeah, so I read your article about uh, the Canadian woman living in Rwanda for the last 20 years. Yeah. You think your, f your family could ever yeah. be her? Yeah, absolutely. I say that to Chris yeah. all the time. Let's sell all of our shit and move to Rwanda. And you, <laughs> do you know what his answer is? <laughs> well, if they had better internet connection, maybe we could. That's just, that's, uh, <laughs> what's the, what's the Wi-Fi like? I was like, oh man. So... There's, a, there's this arc, right? Comparative politics, people in government, interaction, resettlement, displacement. So you're able to link all these things throughout your professional career from Iraq to Rwanda to Rio de Janeiro to New York, right? Because yeah. you, I know that you said in one of your talks that resettlement isn't just a wartime issue. Right. It could be due to climate. It could be due to gentrification, which Ben and I both live in Brooklyn. Uh, we know that. But yeah, also you saw that yep. <laughs> in, uh, in Brazil when yeah. you went there, too. Yeah. So how do all these things kind of like follow this this arc throughout your your career? Looking back, it makes sense. But as I was doing all of it, it didn't make sense. And I didn't know. So I think looking forward, it's hard for me to say, like, where is this going to take me? I don't know. Yeah. I 
I applied to 17 PhD programs and got denied at all of them. So at this point, I'm just trying to figure out how do I make this into something? And that's kind of been my new struggle. And it's like every phase, school is easy, right? Because you can get into school and you can study and learn and interact with whoever you want and however you want. And then you leave and it's like, okay, well now you have to perform and you have to decide what the next thing is. And it's not like you can go into school and pick your topic of study. It's like you have to pick a job that is specific enough that, and and I'm not ready to do that yet. So this last year, I did a fellowship in global journalism at the University yep. of Toronto. So I was up in Toronto a lot for the past year, going back and forth between New York, and I was a freelance journalist. And that has been really cool because then I can actually like look at these things that I'm interested in, like resettlement. And I looked at you know, hunters that are being hired by Borno State in, in Nigeria to fight Boko Haram. And I'm like able to look at these things and be like, I have enough critical thinking skills and and background and understanding of like geopolitics in a lot of places to like to look at those things and understand the context better and write about them in a way that I think is more than most journalists are able to do even if it's just basic journalism like it's it's fun for me to be able to get on Twitter and make contact with people who are fighting Boko Haram because they're on Twitter and and reach out to them and then you know have interviews with them online and like I as an intel analyst, you can't do that. You know, as an intel analyst, you can't call f- people fighting Boko Haram who are like local nationals in Nigeria. But like as a journalist, like the world is your oyster. You can call anybody. So that's been really yeah. interesting. And I've really enjoyed that. And this actually, this last year, I, I was an adjunct at Columbia and our class was looking at slums in Argentina, one of the big barrios there that is kind of like in the center of Buenos Aires. And like, how does a urban center with filled with people who don't have ownership of their land like how do they integrate into a city and so like all of these things come together in some way but it's not like generally like this clear i always say i'm always i don't have a noun like everybody has a noun right like you're a soldier my husband's a banker you're a lawyer you're a doctor like i don't have a noun and sometimes that bothers me and I wish I had a noun, like I'm a human rights, you know, attorney or I am, you know, I work in an NGO and I do this. But like, I have a lot of nouns. And I think that's something I struggled with when I left the military. And I still struggle with because I, I don't know where my arc is going or my trajectory is going. I don't know what my next noun is. But I think for now, I'm happy just kind of like exploring the things I'm interested in and making some money doing that. Yeah. And you also have a, a pretty good desire to teach like at the university level? Well, I don't know, now that I didn't get into a PhD, I don't know if I'm willing to do that whole cycle again. PhDs are very, the application itself is like, kills you and I've done it twice now. I would love to teach at West Point. And here's another example of where being enlisted hurts you. My peers at Columbia in my graduate program who are O3s, they can go teach at West Point with a master's degree because they're O3s and I, as an E7, cannot teach at West Point, right? Even though we went through the same courses and like, I want to be, and I, and get this, this is even the crazier part is I am an adjunct professor at Columbia and I cannot teach undergrad classes at West Point because I'm enlisted. But I think there needs to be some conversation on how to integrate enlisted people into professional opportunities. You know, like there's no reason that only O5s can go to the war college. 
There is no reason right. that a sergeant major should not have that same opportunity. And yes, it might happen every once in a while, but why is it professional development for officers and professional development for enlisted is marching orders, you know? And like, it's just, it's just so antiquated. So, well, I mean, you know, enlisted people have made strides in the last 20 years. For sure. A lot more degree completion, a lot more degree enrollments, uh, you know, getting better opportunities on the outside. But yeah, there's still a little bit of discrepancy, I guess. And when you're talking about, you know, opportunities within the military, you know, you're saying like, hey, look, if I'm a lecturer and I'm an expert at my topic, I should be like judged on what I bring to the classroom and, and not what it says on my ID card. Yeah. So you also do strategic communications consulting. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of my journalism experience, kind of setting a narrative, doing communications in East Africa. So it's kind of like the best of all three worlds, right? Like I still get to do, it's not army related, but it's, it's that background of like how to set a narrative, which is kind of journalism, understanding, you know, geopolitics is important. And then being able to write, being able to create communication strategies has been really, really awesome. And yeah, I do that a couple of days a week. And it's been a good job because it allows me to work when I need to, you know, consulting is really great in that sense. And then I can still do the journalism and then I can still do my reserve time and I can still be a mom and all that kind of stuff too. Okay, so school, like at least two different jobs, reserve time, and then a whole household, balancing this on a weekly basis. How, by the way, how do you manage a New York apartment with five or six people in it? And, and is Chris just like cruelly outnumbered as being the only... The only male? Only, only yeah, guy. we have three girls. My, so my second year of grad school, we adopted uh, twin girls from India. So yeah. yeah, we grew our family while in the midst of like a grueling master's program and Chris as an associate, you know, in banking. So that was a really crazy time. But I've noticed I'm really productive because I have to be so careful with my time. You know, I have a certain number of hours for each thing in my life. And if I don't accomplish my thing in those hours, then I'm not, I'm like failing, you know? So I've actually... Yeah. I look at my sometimes my peers in grad school and I'm and you know who are so stressed out about whatever and like they're single and living alone and I'm like like I have three children under five in grad school I mean it all worked out but I think the busier I am the more productive I am I noticed this last week my, my all my kids are with my parents in Wisconsin right now and I've been really not productive and it's like I have all day. There is nothing stopping me from waiting until 9 p.m. to do this because I don't have my kids here. So I think it's actually kept me really honest. It's kept me really disciplined with like how to manage my life. Yeah, so life is not like a perfect game of Tetris. It's kind of like just doing what you have to do. Yeah, always. Yeah. Okay, everyone, at this point in the podcast, we want to take time to thank you all for listening to Thank You, Now What? The podcast about life after service. As we get going here, being our first episode and all, there are a few ways that we can ask you to support and interact with us. First, we would love you to go on Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review us there. And... You can also do the same anywhere else you're listening to us or anywhere else you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at thank you now what. You can email us with any questions or episode follow-ups at thank you now what at gmail.com. 
You can also visit our website at thankyounowwhat.com for show notes, links, and other ways to support. We also like you to just share by word of mouth. It would help us a lot if you could just tell your friends, family, coworkers, or anyone else you think would enjoy the podcast. It's really as simple as just pressing pause right now and texting it to one person and then coming back to listen. If you'd like to support us in more tangible ways, you can always give a one-time donation via PayPal using our email address, thankyounowwhat at gmail.com, or you can subscribe to us on Patreon. Patreon is a platform for creators where you can donate a set amount per episode. That's any amount, and uh, we'll really appreciate it, and we'll love it if it's just a dollar an episode. To find out more, go to patreon.com slash thankyounowwhat. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash thankyounowwhat. After covering the cost of production, all proceeds from the podcast will go to nonprofits we support. You can also donate directly to nonprofits we feature. This episode features the Coast to Coast Foundation. You can visit them at coastxcoast.org or follow them on Instagram at CXC Foundation. Thank you. You wrote an article for Medium about your family planning, and then we talked about some facts that I actually didn't know about uh, women in the military. Do you want to talk about that too? So when we were in Cleveland, we got pregnant trying to have our second kid so maddie was i think like 20 months old then and we're like now's a good time let's just we wanted three kids 20 weeks or 18 weeks 18 weeks into that pregnancy we um went to i went to the doctor by myself because it was just a normal appointment and they couldn't find a heartbeat so that was absolutely devastating and then we got pregnant again right away and i lost that one at eight weeks and then we got pregnant right away a third time. And you know, the doctors were like, we don't know, we don't know, just keep trying, just keep trying. A third time, and at that one, Chris had moved to New York, I was alone in Cleveland, and I went to the doctor at 18 weeks again, and it's so rare to lose a, I mean, it's 25% of women have a miscarriage in the first 12 weeks. A lot of times they don't even know because it's so early. So it's like, miscarriage is so common. And then, but after 12 weeks, it becomes really, uncommon and that's why people generally wait 12 weeks to tell anybody they're pregnant yeah and so of course i told everybody we put it on facebook like it was a big announcement right we're having another baby wow looks so cool and then the third time it was like okay there's no way and i made it to 12 weeks and i was like okay we're good i made it to 14 weeks i'm like i know it still can happen but statistically speaking for that to happen to me again is so low, like the chances are so low. And we did all this testing in between, right? There was nothing wrong with me. There was nothing wrong with Chris. There was nothing wrong with anybody. And then at week 18, I went in for my appointment and they couldn't find a heartbeat again. And at that point, I was done. I'm like, I, and the crazy part is I went, to, I went to reserve duty in Germany when I was pregnant. And then for some reason, I went again a couple months later and I wasn't pregnant and people were like, hey, how's the baby or what's going on? Weren't you pregnant? And it was like this awful, like, I'm not pregnant, you know? And it was like, and it was hard because you go out in public and you see your friends and you see people in the community and you're pregnant, you're visually pregnant. And then you go out like the next day and you're not, you know? And people are like, ooh, you know, and it's like this really awkward yeah. thing. And I think, so I, I always try to talk about it because people don't talk about it enough because it's so common and people came out of the woodwork like, oh, that happened to me, that happened to me, that happened to me. And it's like, why doesn't anybody talk about this? 
so we decided to adopt and we had wanted to adopt. We'd always said our third kid we would adopt. And it was just kind of like coincidence. We adopted twins. Um, so we never had to worry about this again. But I found out later that, and this has not been studied since 1989, but initial studies are starting to show that women in the military are five times more likely to have fertility issues than people who are not in the military. So there hasn't been any real research on this. I think um, SWAN, which is the Service Women's Action Network, they're yeah. trying to lobby Congress to pay for more research on this because I lived on a burn pit in Iraq. Like everybody I know lived on a burn pit in Iraq, you know, like does that yeah. have something to do with it? Does the seven vaccines for anthrax I took have something to do with it? You know, and like the stressors on a woman's body, like just the massive rucksack I carried for months have anything to do with it? Like, I, I don't know. Like, and none of those things really make sense. But at the same time, they all come together and it makes you wonder, like, if women in the military are five times more likely to suffer infertility than it is related to the military, but how? If they can't find anything wrong with me, how do I prove it? Or how do you inform others? Right. And would that have changed right? Like before my they have to find out, I mean, you you found out in like the most brutal fashion you could imagine. Right. Um, so like it, is anyone is anyone putting this out there? Uh, did you read the stuff from 1989? If you're like a new soldier and you're a woman, are you aware of this? Are you thinking about it? I don't know. And I think that that's definitely something that needs to be dis like discussed more. Um, it wouldn't yeah. change how I've done anything, but maybe I wouldn't have tried so many times, you know, or maybe, okay. and I, I don't know what it would have changed personally. Like if, if people knew that, what, what would change, but maybe what it would change is that they would acknowledge that in your VA disability. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I know teammates who, we're at some outstation that was next to like a uranium mine. Mm -hmm. uh, it turns out the Canadian military like deemed it uninhabitable, and then we just never got the memo. Yeah. So we're we're hanging out there for a couple months before we find it. Um, but like you said, like for most of us, it wouldn't have changed what we did. We just want to know. Right. Yeah. I yeah. I just would have liked to know that that's one of the risk factors when I went in. Right. It's, you know, we're dealing with the same thing with PTSD and TBI mm -hmm. and all that kind of other stuff now. Like, I, I would like to know the risks, and it doesn't mean that I'm not going to do the job, uh, but I just need to be more well-informed. Still yeah. going to do it. Right. Just want to know. You would yeah. not change it. Yeah, I would still do all of the same things. I wouldn't change anything. So how's the family doing now? Yeah, so the twins are almost four, and Maddie's uh, seven, so she's going to be a first grader, um, or she's going to be a second grader. We've really loved the city because we walk everywhere, and every morning I would walk Maddie to school. The twins uh, would take the bus to school, and we would spend our Saturdays on the Great Lawn in Central Park. That was one of our favorite things to do. We would spend, I mean, we've explored every playground in the city, I'm pretty sure. The kids love the subway. We love living in the city. Um, since COVID, it's been a very different place to live. Um, oh, yeah. But I'm hopeful it'll go back to normal soon. What's it like having two parents who are both sergeant first classes? Well, technically, he's a military spouse now. Um, <laughs> 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 I remind him of that. I was like, uh, you're my dependent, right? 
So <laughs> yeah. And actually where he works, they did a big video promoting all the diversity in the organization. And the only piece of the video where he showed up was the piece where he said, we're military spouses. <laughs> I was like, you didn't even get veterans. Uh, <laughs> he got to be the military spouse. Um, so that's funny. Nice. I, I joke about that. No, I need I, that clip, by the way. You saw that? No, I need it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You can go to the website. It's right, All right. On there. <laughs> uh Nothing against military spouses, of course. It's just funny when you serve that whole time and he's just a spouse now. So he, yeah, it's good. I think we always talk about how much we didn't know when we left the military because we'll have people call us. So you guys have done all these cool things. You live in New York City and you've gone to these schools and we, we want to do that. We're leaving the military. And it, we're always like, don't do it. We advise them not to do it most of the time. We, we don't regret leaving but we regret thinking about today, we would only have three years left, you know? Yeah. And like the retirement and the healthcare for your, the rest of your life. So we generally tell people not to leave actually. If, if they don't have a degree, if they don't have any idea what they wanna do. There's some people who are like, no, I really wanna do this or I wanna take over my family business or, you know? And like they have a very set idea. Great, yeah. I think that's great. But I think if you don't have a plan, you don't leave. And I don't think you should leave until you know exactly what it is you wanna do. You almost have to like be their sounding board. Like they have to convince you that they're ready. Yeah, I, we've done that. And people, and I, there's a couple people who've decided not to leave and they might still be pissed that they're in. But I think looking back in a few years, they'll be really happy that they changed, they didn't change their mind about that. Because 40 yeah. years old is young. If you leave the military at 40, Chris would have left at 37 years old because he joined when he was 17. On the contrary, uh, when I left, someone said, what's wrong with you, man? You only have eight more years. <laughs> oh, only eight? Only really? eight? I know. At the time, that sounds like a lot, but I was, it's crazy. I've gone, I've been out for seven years now. Like, what? Like, that's absurd to think that I've left the army for seven years ago, active duty. Yeah. Um, and but, how long were you in? Uh, I did nine years active. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, I'm, I mean, I, I can retire from reserves in a couple of years. I don't plan to, but it's just, and we still sometimes have hard time differentiating like what's reality and what's not like, like, is that a, like, sometimes we'll use a word or I'll use a word in a conversation with a civilian and I'll be like, is that a military word? Business people do the same thing to each other. Yeah, for sure. That carries over in any industry for MBAs, sure. bankers, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Right. I, like I said, the other word, intersectionality. Like Chris has a whole different ridiculous vernacular For now. It's sure. just different. He's like, well, yeah, he, he said something the other day and I was like, can you please never say that again? <laughs> it was banking related. And I was like, oh my God, just stop. But yeah, um, I still think we still are still transitioning. You know, it's been seven years, yeah. but yeah. I still find myself struggling and, and less and less obviously but like struggling with like reality like is this the, was this the right choice because I look at what my peers are in the military and they're all sergeants major and I'm like yeah that would have been a really fun job you know like that would have been a really cool time to be in the military because that would been... impact so many yeah. lives of other soldiers exactly if you think about like your defining moments in military lessons that you learn that you carry with you today, you know, how much did the military shape you into somebody or did it really just help you become a better version of the person you already were? 
I think the communication style in the military is extremely effective and I use that all of the time. When I communicate with people, I say what I wanna say and I'm direct and I just get the business done. And then I also think the ability to move, like we move a lot, right? Like I enjoy moving now. I never thought I would. Uh, my parents have never moved since the day they got married. They still live in the same house. And for them, it's like this weird thing that my family moves all the time but going somewhere new, making new friends, fitting into a new community, like those things I really enjoy. And I don't think I would have enjoyed them so much had I not been in the military and had to do them. But I think it's because the military really set us up for looking at the world through a different lens. You know, when you grow yeah. up in Wisconsin, the world seems so big and everything so, seems so far. And when we talk to yeah. our, a lot of our family, they're like, I could never imagine going all those places. So you're also committed to helping other vets, mainly through the organizations that help you. So I know we talked about Tillman a little bit. I know you're involved in the Columbia uh, University veteran uh, community. I know that you uh, work with a company called Headstrong. Uh, do you want to talk about any of those or any others? Yeah, just a small like blip for Headstrong. Headstrong's a organization that helps veterans get mental health counseling. And you show up, you fill out a survey, whatever, you go in and you meet with a counselor and they decide which of the counselors in their network who are all civilians, who are all willing to give a few extra hours a week to see vets. And they match you with one and you're able to go see that counselor for as long as you need help. I have a lot of friends who, you know, I've recommended like, you know, they're struggling with something or they have anxiety or depression or just PTSD stuff, you know? And it's like, go there, it's free and you can get one of the best mental health counselors in the city. Yeah. It looks like uh, getheadstrong.org. Yep. So I recommend, I mean, there's like, I think 20,000 nonprofit veteran organizations in this country. Like 70%. Oh, there's of, countless. Yeah. yeah. I think yeah. 70 something percent. It's a significant percentage are veteran of, of all nonprofits are for veterans. And like, it's, it's a massive place to try to find help because there's so many options. Like it's, at some point it just becomes too much. But right. I think there's some really standout organizations that are really doing great things and are being really effective. One of those is Headstrong. I think the Tillman Foundation is a really great veteran scholarship. Anybody who's applying for grad school should apply for a Tillman scholarship. So are you going to keep doing journalism? Are you going to keep fighting to get that professorship eventually? Uh, keep helping displaced people? What, what are the things are you interested in right now? Uh, I have a couple of friends right now that I've been talking about starting like a small consulting firm. I'm going to keep doing freelance journalism. I actually want to get into that more. I want to be doing more stories. I want to try to write a story every week. So yeah, yeah those opportunities exist. Uh, I'm more than open to doing them. I would love to spend, I mean, like I've been thinking about applying for a Fulbright scholarship, right? Like why, and go, why can't I go do research for a year in Rwanda? And I'm willing to move my kids there for nine months. You know, like those opportunities to me are not off the table ever. And I think Chris is really supportive of that. And I think he's really like open to those things. And I think he would also want to try to make that work too. Yeah. You kind of like leave it up to you. Yeah. If you're, uh, if you're able to work from home, home, home is a flexible term. Right. Exactly. We're like, we're COVID vagabonds is what I've been saying. There you go. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, this is only episode one of the podcast, so later on when we're like uh, 
really famous and have you know thousands of downloads per episode. We'll have you back on for a follow-up. Matt, is there ever going to be one out. where you introduce yourself? Yeah, I think we're going to record post-production stuff for this episode. And okay. We are, uh, you know, we're going to have a, an intro episode up there too. Good. Because I was thinking yeah. about that when we were talking. I'm like, they're not going to know who you are. <laughs> well, we'll try to make it a... Uh, <laughs> We'll try to put it in context. Thanks again for joining us on this episode of Thank You, Now What? The podcast about life after service. Join us next time when we talk to Micah Niebauer, who's a former Green Beret, a Wharton MBA, and co-founder, CEO of Southern Pines Brewing Company in Southern Pines, North Carolina. Also, please remember to rate, review, and share the podcast. We really appreciate it. Thanks. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by the Coast to Coast Foundation. Founded and operated by members of the U.S. Special Operations Community, the Coast to Coast Foundation works to bridge the financial gap between veterans' medical needs and what's traditionally covered. Their annual cross-country motorcycle ride, the Ride for the Fallen, stops in more than a dozen cities across the country to strengthen communities and raise funds. All proceeds from the Coast to Coast Foundation go to assisting veterans in their recovery from combat and service-related issues like traumatic brain injury, post-traumatic stress, substance abuse, and other physical injuries. By Veterans for Veterans. Visit coastxcoast.org to find out more and, more importantly, to donate. That's coastxcoast.org. You can also follow them on Instagram at CXC Foundation. Thank you.